name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is risen. It's beautiful to be here and to share this time because it's a time when we focus on the resurrection. And one point we must make is Christ did not rise last Sunday. That's not why we're here. Christ is risen already. And he rose 2,000 plus years ago and he is still risen. And that's why we have the opportunity for salvation. But why we dedicate this time is to remind ourselves of the importance of the resurrection. The importance of what God did for us. Of course, first and foremost, God created us. And he created us with such love that he gave us everything. And then he decided that we were worth saving. You see, if we look at 1 Corinthians 10, there's a beautiful passage, but we don't usually equate it with the resurrection, but I want to apply it to the resurrection today. And it says this, St. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. If we look at that within the context of our lives, we see that no temptation has overtaken you except, except that which, ha which is common to man. So, of course, all of us were tempted and, were, and fell as huma humanity. So, first of all, when Adam and Eve were created and they fell, we all fell through them. But in actual fact, even when our lives continue, we fall on a daily basis because we sin. But the fall back then, the fall of Adam and Eve, the fall of the whole of humanity, was so great. But even that was never supposed to be a way of blocking us, an obstacle, from us entering into the kingdom of God. It was for a time, but it was never ever meant to be forever. It was never meant to be a permanent block. It was a time that we were living in darkness in the shadow of death, and then in the fullness of time, our Lord Jesus Christ came as the incarnate word to change that. So what had befallen us as humanity had befallen the whole of humanity. But then the next part of this passage says, but God is faithful. And that is such a beautiful thing to remember. God is faithful. We often, we often forget that. We often forget that God is faithful. We look at God as a provider. We ask him for things. We think of him as great. We think of him as creator. We think of him as savior. But we don't remember that he's faithful. So that when he makes his promise, he fulfills his promise. And the promise 
that he fulfilled to us was that we would see salvation. So although there were those in the generations before the incarnation, before our Lord Jesus Christ came to the world, were still waiting. They were waiting for a faithful God who was going to deliver according to his promise. And so we're reminded in this passage that God is faithful. Why? It goes on, because he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Ever. We sometimes fall into temptations. We feel that things get in our way. We feel that we're faced by things we can't handle. And it frightens us. It scares us. It scares us to think that there is something that we can't do. And rightly so. Who wants to feel powerless? Who wants to feel that he or she is backed into a corner and has no way out? Because let's face it, if, if you have no way out, if you have no hope, then why should you try to repair anything? Why should you try to fix anything? You know, if you fall into debt, for instance, and you feel that there's no hope of fixing the situation, then why would you try to save or work or do anything else? If you have a conflict with someone and you stop dealing with them and you feel like there's no way of fixing that, why would you make an attempt to reconcile? If you fall into sin and think there is no way of coming back from sin, why would you want to repent? or confess, or partake of the Eucharist, or live a good life. It's done. So God never ever wants us to be condemned or feel condemned forever. In actual fact, his plan always was, after we fell, that he will restore us. And that's what he did in the resurrection. He restored us. Why? Because he is faithful, and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape. So if we look at this whole scenario of the resurrection, with the temptations we face on earth, with the challenges we faced, with being expelled from the kingdom because of our actions, with having fallen from grace and having been a broken humanity, even with all that, he still was going to always give us a way of escape. And that way of escape was the cross and the resurrection. Always. That was always part of his plan. You know, sometimes you deal with parents who have, have children who feeling the invincible nature of youth, think they can do everything. And so sometimes you say, fine, you want to do everything? Do everything. And you find that they're failing, they're making a mistake, they're, they're falling into temptation, and it goes from one step to the next to the next, but you know 
that the parent is standing there and will not let them go beyond a certain point. Because once you go beyond that point, it's difficult to come back. And God knows that point for us. God knew that point for humanity. And in the fullness of time, what he did is he said, okay, I have now come to restore you. I have now come to give you that way out. I don't want you to feel estranged anymore. I don't want you to feel alienated anymore. I don't want you to feel sinful and defiled anymore. Because even with the sin and the defilement and the brokenness, I now give you an opportunity for life. And so I will ascend to the cross. And after I have ascended to the cross... And after I have died on the cross, and after I've been buried in the tomb, I'm going to rise. And I'm going to raise you with me. And raising you with me on that day will mean that you will always have a means of escape. Always. Why? Because the end of the passage says, but he will always make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You see, God doesn't want to break us. God doesn't want us to feel disempowered. God doesn't want us to lose hope. God wants us to feel that we can always find a way back to him. Always, without exception. Because what sense would it make if we are a broken humanity, if we're a sinful humanity, what, would it, what sense would it make to say to us, you know what, the minute you fall, you have no way back. That's, that's the end of it for you. Why would that be an option? How would that be a possibility? Why would God put us in that situation to make us feel that we've fallen so far that there is no way back up. So with every temptation, even the temptation that befell the whole of humanity, the cross and the resurrection were, the, were our way out of that. And it's important for us to realize that he will give us those ways and those means and those solutions even if we're not fully aware of what we do to achieve them or really what they mean in the first place. Don't forget that, that people met our Lord as he entered Jerusalem and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they received him as a savior, as a king. But then they didn't know what to do with it. He didn't, didn't strike them as a king. He didn't act like a king. He didn't tell them that they need to rise up against the Romans. He didn't say that he was going to destroy Caesar and the empire. They weren't really aware of it. But with time, the revelation became more clear and more digestible.
In the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 16, we read, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them by paths they did not know. I will make them, I will make the darkness light before them, the crooked place straight. All things I will do for them, and I will not forsake them. That's what he did for us. He turned darkness into light. He turned the crooked path into a straight path. He showed us a way that we didn't imagine. Who could have thought, who could have thought that salvation could come through a tomb? How does that make sense? Now for us, what happens is, you know, if we were looking with our own human rational eyes, our Lord is serving for three years, okay, there's hope, he's the Messiah. He comes into Jerusalem, there's hope. He even ascends to the cross, and there's still hope. If you are, if you are the Messiah, save yourself and save us with you. There's still hope. Put on a big show. Of course you're waiting for the big, for the big finale. You're going to be there on the cross and suddenly you're going to put on this huge escape. You know, a, a Harry Houdini escape that suddenly impresses the whole world. But even that didn't work. And it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. And then where does it go into? It ends up in a tomb. Well, a tomb is very much a dead end. He went into the tomb. The stone was rolled over the door of the tomb. It was sealed, and that was it. Who could have thought that that tomb was actually a, a way into salvation through resurrection? Who could have thought that that crucifixion, that apparent public display of weakness and vulnerability, could have been a way into salvation. It didn't make sense. I will bring them these things through ways they did not know. But then when you think about it, when you focus on it, you think, Lord, you are such a magnificent, loving God. Because what you did is, <clears throat> you know, anyone can make good out of a good situation. If you are born in a very fortunate life with a great career and you have everything for you and you have, find it very easy to live righteousness and all things for you, then it's great. But you know, it's much more impressive. If you can take someone like Simon Peter, who was a rash uneducated, rough fisherman and turn him into a great disciple, if you can take Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, and turn him into a great apostle, if you can take St. Moses the Strong, if you can take Augustine, if you can take St. Mary of Egypt, people who lived absolute sinful lives and turn them into saints, then there's hope for me. So through the cross, through the suffering, through the death, through the apparent defeat, what our Lord says to us is, you know what? 
even when you feel like you have been absolutely defeated, even when you feel like it's done, there's still a resurrection. Even when you feel completely defiled in your sin, when you have sinned time after time after time, there's repentance, there's confession, there's my body and my blood, there's the Eucharist, and there's forgiveness. And that is the beauty of this message, the beauty of the resurrection that meant that it changed the perspective of the world. It wasn't about being the powerful Roman Empire. It was about being the meek Messiah who came in on a donkey and saved the world. There's also an important point in the way we make assessments and the way we make choices in our lives. And we're warned about this in the Gospel of St. Matthew when our Lord says, For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? We often think of loss and gain in very material, worldly ways. So when the Jews were thinking, when our Lord came, of loss and gain, they thought the way to gain power is that they must gain rule. Their loss was their powerlessness and that they had to be under the Romans. No one ever thought that gain Spiritual gain could, count, could come from an apparent worldly loss. No one could have thought that a resurrection could come from such a painful death as the crucifixion. And so it changes our perspective. It means, you know, don't just look for the flashy worldly solutions. Because in actual fact... What can look like a defeat in the world might actually be your spiritual victory. What looks like powerlessness and persecution in the world could actually be your power and your authority spiritually. And it changed us. And our Savior meant to take our form as humans for that very purpose. Because even now, you know, even now when we speak about our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was the incarnate word, he was fully God and fully man. And you say, but he walked on earth. We'll say, oh, but he's God, which is absolutely right. But imagine if he hadn't even walked on earth. You know, even the fact that he's walked on earth and he had this humanity, but he also had the divinity, we keep thinking, yeah, but he's God. How can I do any of that? Imagine if he hadn't even taken flesh. Our response would have been, how does he know my life? How does he know how I live? How does he know this experience? He created me. He formed me. He's in his kingdom and he doesn't even know me. Whereas the answer is, no, actually not. He gave up everything. He left his kingdom. 
And he came down to live your life, my life, and walk before us and say to us, you know what? I didn't have to, but I came down to experience your life. And I love you that much. And all I want you to do is walk in my footsteps. Now, of course, you are only human. This is God speaking, not me. Because You're only human, but I am expected to ascend to the cross and die and then rise because I have the weight of the whole of humanity on my shoulders. I need to save the whole of humanity. All you need to do is to allow me to save you and then be an example for the salvation of others. You're not carrying the weight of the whole of humanity. You're just being you. So when we say, yeah, but I'm not God, yes, of course, but you're not carrying the weight of God. You're not carrying the responsibility of God. You're not carrying the position of fatherhood and savior of God that he carries for the whole world. And so the concepts of loss and gain have changed. Because if, if we go back to the passage from Isaiah, what our Lord is saying when we link Isaiah and Matthew is, you know, if you give up what you think is worldly power, I will show you a solution that you could not possibly have imagined. You know, there's a there's a an expression that we all use now because it's it's very it's very trendy, especially in the business world or in the entertainment world or in the media world, where you say, "Less is more," right? Because people ramble, like me, I'm rambling, rambling, rambling. Right? But less is more. You know, you can always say something in a few words, and it, it's very, you know, it, it, it's it's very impressive, it's very striking, it's very effective. Less is more. And that's what our Lord tried to show us. Not only is less more in what you say and how you live, less is more in terms of your life on earth. The less you hold on to this world, the more you achieve and take on from the next. The less you hold on to this humanity, the more you become more godly, godlike. Like Saint Athanasius, when he said that he, God, became like us in the incarnation, that we may become more like him. That's what it meant. Let go of this world so you can achieve much more of the world that is to come. Now there's a Again, a beautiful verse from 2 Corinthians 2.14, where St. Paul says, Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Our triumph must always be Christ. If you look at 
those who, until today, die for their faith. Those who sacrifice for their faith. Those who are persecuted for their faith. Those who need to make daily decisions for their faith. If I'm going to look at my success as my success, if I'm going to look at, as, look at it as me, what do I need to do, then, of course, I may look at it as something, as a defeat. So if I am going to look at being a very prominent person in my job, at any cost, at any cost, then if I sacrifice because I want to be a moral person, I want to live an ethical life, I might think that, you know, I've lost something. Because what have I lost? I've lost the earthly recognition. I've lost the earthly raise. I've lost the earthly promotion. I've lost the earthly prominence. But if I'm looking at things in Christ, so why do I want to be an honest person? Because I want to be Christ-like. Why do I want to make the right choices? Because I want to be Christ-like. Why do I want to live holiness? Because I want to be Christ-like. So if I look at what I'm losing to be Christ-like, then of course then he gives me triumph in Christ. So those people who gave up their lives, you think, why did you lose your life on earth? Well, actually... I didn't really lose it. I gained a life in the kingdom, in Christ. Why did you want to lose that prominence in your job and recognition? I didn't. I gained the righteousness and goodness and holiness in Christ. Why aren't you worried about dying in the flesh and leaving this world? Because actually, I am then going to a better place that has been prepared for me because I die in Christ. And so our whole perspective changes. Our whole view of the world and view of our lives and view of people around us and view of our objectives changes. That's what our Lord meant when he said, to his disciples, when he said about his disciples, they're in the world, but not of the world. Yes, of course you go to work in the morning. Yes, of course you make decisions. Yes, of course you need to be faithful and shrewd. And you need to be effective and successful. But be those in Christ. Be Christ-like. Because as this passage ends, it says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge into every place. Because when I am Christ-like, people see that Christ-likeness in me. They, they, they get the fragrance of Christ. They get the fragrance of Christ. You know, if, you know, it works both ways. It works if you're sitting next to someone who's 
using a wonderful sort of scent. Or actually, you know what, if you've come to church and you've used incense in liturgies, you walk out and people think, it's a nice smell, you've taken up the incense. Equally, if you've sat next to someone who smokes. So it works both ways. And that's exactly the same. If we've been in an environment that is godly, that is Christ-like, where we get that incense, we walk into the room and people get that fragrance. So if we're living in Christ, then that fragrance is dissipated through us into the whole world. And that is the concept of the resurrection, that he is always going to give us a way of escape, that he will give it to us by means we may not know or understand, that to get those, we must let go of sometimes what we know and hold on to what he tells us. And that having done that, thanks be to God who always leads us into triumph in Christ, that through us he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge into every place. And glory be to God forever. Amen.